Hello, and welcome back to the Baseball Trade Values Podcast. My name is Joshua Iverson, and I am the Associate Editor of BaseballTradeValues.com, joined as always by founder and owner John Bitzer. John, it's been, you know, two and a half weeks now since our last episode, and it seems like half the league is on a new team. There's, <laughs> there's been a whole lot of action, billions of dollars being thrown left and right. How you doing? I'm doing great. It's a cold, yucky, rainy, sleety day in New Jersey, and winter is coming. But winter's already here in the in the free agent market, at least. Not much going on in the trade market, but we'll talk about how those two relate a little bit. But um, yeah, lots going on there. A lot of lot of new new teams for some of these players. You remember how two years ago the trade deadline, the 2021 deadline, everyone was kind of unanimously like, "Yeah, this is the craziest deadline we've had." Yeah. Ever. yeah i feel like this winter meetings was kind of the same because because you're right that um the trade market's been pretty quiet and we can get into why that mm-hmm. might be and and the pieces that are still left out there um but so many big free agents so, just so many free agents in general it's like half the market went during that few day period at the winter meetings yeah. and you know it, it's a fairly strong free agent class i don't think it's one that people were like yep this is the this is the strongest class in the last 10 years i don't think people are were quite hyping it that much but oh my goodness there's been some movement there's been a lot of money being thrown around and uh we have a lot to talk about today yeah so i do think it was a strong class when you've got aaron judge at the top Degrom at the top and some other you know really good ones verlander and you know like you know it's it's the, short the talent the talent level the talent level was there at the top right and so you would expect that talent to get paid more um but you know i think it's also you know and i know ken rosenthal had a good piece on that but you know there's some pent-up demand you know when you think about the last couple of years you know there was covid there was the cba lockout and like owners didn't know who was coming or when and so now there's more certainty like you know people who have a lot of money to invest in certain things like certainty. They don't like uncertainty. And now there is certainty. They know fans will be in the stadiums. And so um, the ones who really want to win are like, okay, yeah, we got to go for it. And then you've got like guys like Steve Cohen just blowing the roof off the place because you know money knows money is no object. And so the rising tide is lifting some uh, some if not all of the boats. Yeah, it's it's hard to accurately gauge not not to go too far on a tangent here, and we're going to talk about the Mets a lot later on. Yeah. But it's hard to accurately gauge how much one or two, I don't want to call them irrational bidders or anything like that, but just how, how much adding one or two more deep pockets to the usual pool actually influences the entire market, has that big domino effect. Because, I don't know, I, I think you could make a pretty strong argument that Cohen and the Padres, those those two entities alone have really flipped things on their head and are really driving a lot of this um, from, from yeah. the top to the bottom, every part of the market. So, yeah, so... But then you've got Dombrowski, who's always been a big spender, right? And he just got off the World Series, so he wants to try to win it next year. So he's spending, and he's convinced his his main skill set, as people say, is his convincing ownership to spend money, and that's what he likes to do. So now you got you know, you got the Mets, you got the Phillies, you got the Padres, all going for it, uh, and then some other teams who have been surprisingly quiet. Some big big names like the Yankees and Dodgers have been like, okay, yeah, I'm the Yankees sign judge, but you know, Dodgers, what are they doing? And, you know. So so I think there's more to come there. But um the main point I want to make is it's not 
like when you look at what all the other teams are doing, there's 30 teams, right? And if you give three to five of them are really spending, but the other 25 are still sort of being rational. Like, there's not like a whole lot of irrationality going on with the Clevelands and the and the Giants even, you know, they're getting outbid, 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 and I'm bloom with the Red Sox getting outbid. I mean, they're, they've got their limits, right? So this whole idea of of intelligent spending is still kind of at play with, you know, the majority of the teams. Yeah, it's just the idea that, you know, you used to, let's say there's a free agency period with five big free agents, you know, you used to kind of be able to pencil it in as, okay, one of them's going to the Yankees, maybe a second one, we'll see. One's going to the Red Sox, one's going to the Dodgers. And then you can debate about a couple other spots after that, you know, maybe the Tigers back in the day, maybe the Giants make a splash, something like that, you know. But then just adding a couple more teams to that with the Phillies, Mets, Padres, adding a few more teams that aren't typically massive spenders into that category, it has kind of a trickle effect. You know, there's more competition for those top, top tier players that can only really go to yeah. one of those teams. And there's also more comp competition for these middle of the road guys. I'm thinking the Tyones yeah. and... Yeah. Um, and uh taiwan, taiwan walkers Walker. of the world yeah yeah and i guess i should have looped the cubs in there as well yeah. um anyway this is a whole lot of discussion that we necess didn't necessarily plan for the start of the episode uh we'll sure. be talking about all these teams a lot more uh let's just start out though kind of segueing from there into what we're seeing on the market as a whole and how we explain all of this that we are seeing so you you started to allude to it a bit there with um with mentioning you know, this is the first stable off season we've had in a while. Right. This between COVID, between the lockout and everything in between, this is the first time you're able to just, yep, this is how much we expect to make. We can say that with some level of certainty. This is how much we feel comfortable spending. This is when we know the season will start. We we haven't had that in a while. So right. that's definitely a driving factor here. Um, another big one that people have been talking about is the MLB AM money, uh, MLB mm -hmm. advanced media sale to Disney a handful of years back. I think the last lump sum of that money got sent out this off season. So it's, it divvies up to 30 million a team. Uh, it's not necessarily, I, I don't think it's necessarily as clean cut as that, that every team just gets $30 million to stick in their pockets. I don't know if the league might be holding on to some of that revenue and, or how, how it's exactly it's dispersed, but Regardless, it's an influx of cash to the league, and so that definitely helps. Um, what what else do you think is at play here, if anything? In inflation, definitely. So we've made an adjustment to our model. Once it became clear that prices were going a little bit higher, like at first I was skeptical, like maybe it's a couple of cases, and then there were a few more cases, and there are more cases, and like, okay. And then you look at the economy as a whole, you know, inflation's been relatively high. This is not news. And so our long-term, you know, historically, you know, inflation typically goes about 3%. And so our model was built on that assumption, but it's not at 3% right now. So we had to bump it up to kind of, you know, re rework the numbers a little bit. It's it's up to close to 10% this year. And so, and then the following years, we have to expect it to be a little bit higher than that as well. And, you know, so right now we're looking at 4% uh, for the years thereafter. So... So once we make those adjustments, and we made them already to most of the most of the uh, the players in our system, you know the numbers actually um, get a lot closer, and so I think that's that's a big factor, and um, and keep in mind also that certain teams are getting revenue sharing, so they have to spend it, like the A's have to spend the money, or else it looks really bad if they don't. 
So they've even made a couple of purchases on the kind of the low end of, you know, a couple of utility players. So um, so I just think everything is kind of influencing the spending, the certainty of, you know, the blue sky with, okay, mostly COVID is behind us and the lockouts behind us and we've got inflationary prices and we've got more competition. Um, you could make an also, also a case that because there's now 12 teams going into the playoffs every year, those teams are feeling like, oh, we got a shot. And so we're going to spend a little bit. You know, you can make the opposite case as well. Like, well, if it's easier to get in, maybe I don't have to spend. But I think it's right now looking like the former, looking like, yeah, we want to make our team better, see if we can really get in there. So all those things I, are at work. Yeah, I was about to bring up the expanded playoffs point because I think you do see it from both ends, right? Where the Phillies wouldn't have made the playoffs. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong on this. I think they were the last team in, right? Uh, and, and yeah, they wouldn't have made so. the playoffs in yeah. any season other than last season. And if they don't make the playoffs and make this big World Series push, do you think they're spending quite this much? No. I don't. I, I think they're they're still playing in the top of the market probably because they have such an expensive aging team and they want to take advantage of the Wheeler, Nola, Harper, Schwarber core, Real Muto yeah. while they have it. Uh, but I don't think they're just handing out blank checks the way they have been so far, if not for that big World Series push. So that's a big factor on that end. You can argue something similar for teams like the Rangers that are continuing to make a push. Uh, you could argue it a bit for the Padres as well, since they were an edge team last year, the Mariners. But I think you also see it on the other end where the Dodgers, and they they have a complicating factor in Trevor Bauer. You yeah. know, they, they don't exactly know how to account for the large sum of money that he could be owed this upcoming season. And whether whether he's going to be owed that amount or not, whether his suspension appeal will be successful. Um, and there's a whole lot riding on that, obviously. So that's a big factor. But regardless, they're a team who lost a lot of talent this offseason and also shed a lot of salary. You know, they between Trey Turner, uh, Cody Bellinger, Justin Turner, uh, there might be one or two other names I'm missing here, but between those guys, that's a decent chunk of money that comes off the yeah. books, and they didn't necessarily have any massive uh, arbitration raises to account for. Right. And, and so obviously they re-signed Kershaw, which, duh. <laughs> but yeah. beyond that, you, you argue even if they're maintaining a similar uh, payroll to last year, they still got room for one of the big shortstops or something. And yeah. It's we're only partway through the off season. There's still some big names out there. They could still make their splash, but to this point, they haven't. And you wonder if maybe that is because they know, hey, just because we win 110 games like they did this last season, that doesn't mean anything. Especially the more playoff teams you add into the mix, it's just even easier to get bounced early from that. So maybe yeah. they just don't have as much incentive to push as hard as they could. Yeah. So another sort of interesting thing that I've noticed is we, we mentioned that the trade market hasn't really gotten going yet. And it seems like um, teams are more willing to spend money than trade prospects. Like there's some prospect talking going on. Like, yeah, no, I don't want to give up assets. I, you know, I've got money to spend. My owner wants to spend it. So I'm just going to acquire players that way and upgrade my team that way as opposed to trading from the top of my farm, which is painful. So I don't want to do that painful thing. So I'm just going to spend my owner's money. There's been a lot of that going on. And maybe once we get to the point where they've spent most of that money, you're like, okay, I still got to make some upgrades. Okay, who can I get? Uh, Brian Reynolds is out there. Sean Murphy's out there. Then we're going to start to see that moving a little bit more. Yeah, I think that's a great call. And, you know, it, it's also possible that 
some of these teams that hold these guys are holding out for exactly that scenario. You know, they're yeah. The A's aren't going to jump on a Sean Murphy trade until they know exactly where where Wilson Contreras ends up, and maybe even they're waiting on Christian Vasquez to an extent. But when there's so many teams looking at so many different spots, um, I'm just pulling up a, a name off the top of my head. Uh, who else needs a catcher? The Cardinals already got Contreras. Uh, I'm blanking right now. Who else needs a catcher and has money? John, help me. Uh, Padres even. Okay, the Padres. Padres <laughs> Red Sox. Yeah. Yes, yes. Okay, there we go. Let's, let's <laughs> use the Red Sox as my example. Um, if they're interested in Sean Murphy, but they have so many other avenues that they could make upgrades, and there's so many other free agents that they're interested in right now, Sean Murphy's not priority number one for them. And you can argue that there's some teams where Sean Murphy is or should be priority number one. I'm thinking of the Guardians, where they're not going to be dipping their toes into the high end of the free agent market. So that's a very logical landing spot for Murphy. But when you look at teams like the Red Sox and Padres, when there's so much they can do to upgrade and they can play in the deep end of the free agent pool, then if you're the A's, you're not saying, hey, give me your last best offer for Murphy to the Red Sox while they have 10 other options on the table. But now that the Red Sox have seemingly missed out on almost every option they they liked, <laughs> and the same can kind of go for the Giants and maybe a couple of these other teams, they theoretically have more incentive to, okay, we're going to rethink this Murphy thing. Maybe this guy is on the table now, that kind of thing. So yeah, I, I, it goes both ways, you know, because if that was just a consistent logic every year for everyone, then nobody would ever sign and nobody would ever get traded because everybody's just waiting for the other guy to do it first. You know, yeah, right. there, there's the argument for Contreras to wait and sign his free agent deal after Murphy gets traded to take one other option, you know, to, to take another option off the board and be, hey, I am the last good catcher out there. Pay me what I want. Yeah. So there's that argument as well, and that obviously didn't happen. It's always a kind of a cat and mouse game with the market, but right, I think it's right. pretty logical and pretty obvious that that is what's happening with Murphy right now. Yeah. Well, all right, lots going on. I, I think uh, my last uh, last point that I want to repeat here, you alluded it to alluded to it with the bump in inflation. Uh, I I don't think this is just a blip. I think there's there's a reason to be concerned that it is just a blip in the market and we, we see things kind of go back to normal either throughout the rest of this offseason or next offseason, whatever. And, you know, maybe there there is a logical argument to, hey, if all of if it looks like all of the free agents are getting paid a little bit more than we expected them to, maybe that's just because the free agents that are getting these big offers are saying, sure, I'll take it. And everybody that's left on the market isn't getting these big offers and they're going to have to settle for you know, what we expected them to get or even less. So I think that argument exists. And there's also the whole MLBAM argument of this is just kind of a one-time influx of cash into the league. They're not going to quite have this next year. Things will settle back down. And so you could put together an argument that this is just a one-year thing. I don't think either you or I think it is. I also don't think this will continue going forward, that this is exactly the baseline we should expect. Uh, but I think, yeah, I, I think it does look like we're back to some stability. The luxury tax thresholds have been increased in the new CBA. That's an, a factor for some teams as well. Um, Steve Cohen exists. That's a massive factor in in spending and, and the expanded playoffs. So I think everything seems to line up that, yeah, we should expect this to be closer to the new normal. Maybe not exactly, but closer to it. 
closer. When you look ahead to, to next year, Otani is going to be the big fish because uh, you know he's not signing an extension now with the Angels, so he'll be a free agent next year. Devers, if he doesn't sign an extension with the Red Sox, will be a free agent. So you've got some big names up in the market once again next year, so I can see this playing out. Otani is the next judge and probably more. So... Um, um, we haven't looked at it that much in detail, but you know, I, th- I can see next year being healthy and, and playing out in a similar way. I was thinking about that earlier. Man, that's going to be fun with Otani next year. It's it's going to be one of those situations <laughs> where I think everybody's opening up their books. You know, maybe not the A's and the Pirates and these teams, but if there's a guy for a small market team to just hand the blank check to, it's him. And I, oh, we're going to see so many mystery teams, John. So many of them. <laughs> it's gonna be fun. Everything's gonna. Oh man, what if what if he waits all off season to sign? What if he waits and takes his time and just holds up the whole market? No, don't say that. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that would not I, be I, yeah, I, I won't speak that into existence. But I am looking forward to the uh, the Otani <laughs> Otani round two free agent courting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, all right. That's uh, I think that's a good assessment of where the market is right now. Uh, let's talk about some of the things that happened. Uh, let's let's start with some of the trades. We are baseball trade values. Uh, we said there weren't a ton of them, but there were a few, and and they're all pretty interesting in their own way. So starting with the biggest one, the Brewers picked up outfielder Jesse Winker, who we had at 1.8 million in median trade value, as well as corner infielder Abraham Toro, who we had at zero, from the Seattle Mariners in exchange for second baseman Colton Wong at 0.1 million, and Cash, which was reportedly 1.75 million, and makes this deal pretty much perfectly fair between the two sides. It it lines up great. Um, We heard a lot of buzz about the Brewers shopping Colton Wong around. We also heard some buzz about the Mariners looking for a new home for Jesse Winker. And these were, this was just uh, uh, needs lining up very well. We heard that the Mariners were in on some of the top free agent infielders with the idea of playing one at second base uh, to complement JP Crawford at shortstop. They obviously didn't go that route Didn't end up, handing out the big contract to Trey Turner or Xander Bogarts. Instead, they go a little smaller, grab Colton Wong. He's a decent fit for them. He makes for a good platoon with Dylan Moore, who mashes lefties. And then on the Brewers' side of it, they just need more offense all over. They have infield prospect Bryce Terang on the way. They think he's almost ready, and he's a bit more of a glove-over-bat type of infielder, so kind of in that Wong territory as well, so shouldn't shouldn't be too big of a drop-off there. And instead, they... Get a nice power hitting outfielder. That was kind of a position of weakness for them, as well as Abraham Toro, who he's shown some flashes. They can take a chance on him. They have room for it. Um, so that's as far as the fit perspective goes. And obviously the balance, the values lined up nearly perfectly here, John. And, mm-hmm. and you can maybe talk more about that in the money component. Yeah. So we had we had Jesse Winker at a 1.8 surplus value, Toro at zero. So total of 1.8 uh, going to the Brewers. Uh, Wong we had at 0.1 and 1.75 cash going to the Mariners. So it's it's so perfect. Now, um, some people said, oh, it's a salary dump for the Brewers, but it's not because Wong was scheduled to make $10 million, So they got rid of that, um, but they picked up, picked up Winker's 8.3, and they sent 1.75. So they actually spent $50,000 more. So it's not that. I think it's just a swap of needs, and they were looking for, for kind of – a little more more upside, I think, with Winker's bat, as you pointed out, which they could use, and they have a ready replacement for Wong at second. So it made sense from that point of view. Um, so really, it was it was just a classic case of if you base it on surplus value, it's a match, right? Now Winker's value obviously has declined quite a bit. 
you know, in other words, he has, um, he's getting paid 8.3. If he were a free agent, he would have been worth 10.1. So that's why the difference is 1.8. Uh, Wong um, is worth 10.1 and he's making 10. So that's why they sent the cash to make the difference. So it's a very fair trade. I always think it's fun when the X trade turns into the Y trade. And what I mean by that is, you know, I guess I guess the example off the top of my head is the Jared Kelnick trade. You know, everyone's roasting the Mets over the coals for trading Kelnick away for Cano and Diaz. And then over time, it changed from the Kelnick trade into the Edwin Diaz trade as he became the most successful piece of that deal. And I think we saw something kind of similar happen in just the course of a year where the Jesse yeah. Winker trade to the Mariners became the Eugenio Suarez trade. He's a pretty capable third baseman for them. And Winker completely flamed out, had some clubhouse issues, chemistry issues, injury issues, and also just didn't play all that well. So it makes sense that he'd be a guy they move, especially as they already uh, added Kyle Lewis. Um, didn't they add another outfielder? Am I, am I blanking? Um, no, they, they traded Kyle Lewis, excuse me. Uh, yeah. Which uh, added to Oscar Hernandez. That's who I was thinking yes. of. Um, and they could still be in the, in the market for another name Probably. as well since they lost yeah. Mitch Hanniger. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, always fun when when the way we look at a trade shifts so drastically in just the course of a year. Because who yeah, knows? Absolutely. This might be the Abraham Toro trade in a year. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, it, you know, sometimes it's easy to think, oh yeah, he's worth this and he's worth that, and we say it as if that's you know gospel. It's not gospel. It's just an estimate, and there are variances, and there's it's a bell curve, and so you know they're going to outperform here and underperform there, and so a trade is always flexible in terms of who's going to actually deliver what they thought they would. This guy didn't. This guy did, and you're sort of rounding it all up. So that's kind of how it works. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you, nobody was calling the uh, was that Rich Harden deal. No one was calling that the Josh Donaldson deal at the time. Right. Exactly. Anyway. Moving on to the next trade here. Uh, the Braves picked up right-handed reliever Joe Jimenez at $2.5 million median trade value. And Cash, which I haven't seen that amount reported anywhere. Uh, you yeah, can correct me, me if I'm wrong. Okay. Um, picked those, the, Jimenez and some amount of cash from the Tigers, probably not a ton. Uh, in exchange for outfield slash third base prospect Justin Henry Malloy at $4.7 million. And left-handed pitching prospect Jake Higginbotham, who was not in the system at the time of the trade. I'm going to guess he's been added since... Yeah, 0 0.1. 0 0.1. Sounds about right to me. Uh, so, yeah. So, with the cash component still not reported, it's it's still pending that. But tentatively accepted by the model. It's going to be close enough. Uh, yeah. This is the Braves backfilling their, uh, their bullpen after Kenley Jansen left in free agency, went to the Boston Red Sox. And Jimenez isn't going to be their closer. It's probably going to be a mix of arms favoring Rysel Iglesias, who they picked up from the Angels last deadline. Uh, but he is a, a quality late inning arm to help out with that group. And they gave up a, a pretty interesting prospect in Malloy. He was a hot name in that system. And I, I know a lot of Braves fans were upset that he was given up in a trade like this just for you know a, a short-term bullpen piece. Uh, but I think a decent pickup for the Tigers. That's one of those, you know, he's on the rise. He could, it could have just been a one-year blip and it could be that he's figured something out and now he's going to be a masher. Uh, but you can, you can take that chance kind of. Uh, what did you think about this one? Yeah. Um, so from a valuation standpoint, it's probably going to look fair. We don't know what the cash amount is. Uh, so, but, you know, if you figure um, Jimenez was making 2.6, it can't be more than 2.6. And it's probably not more than 1.9 because um, the league minimum 
uh, typically the league frowns on a bunch of you pay the whole thing. Not always, but you know. But let's just say it was like around one point nine or there or a little bit less. It works out like four ish to four eight. So it's it's a fair deal from a valuation standpoint. Um, I don't think Atlanta would have traded Malloy if they thought he was the next Michael Harris or the next Von Grissom or some of the talented guys they've been bringing up. Uh, they're pretty savvy when they trade. Um, so maybe he doesn't have as much upside as one of those guys. And so they figured he was expendable for a guy who could help them in the bullpen now. And Scott Harris on the other side, who's new to the job in Detroit, was like, okay, I'm, I'm picking up a good, decent position playing prospect. So even if it becomes just like a an average regular, that's a good move. Um, Jimenez is interesting because, you know, he was in the All-Star game a couple of years ago, and then he totally fell off. He had some really rough years, but then 2022 was kind of a bounce back. So he's sort of the classic case of a, a volatile reliever. Like, he's up, he's down, he's up, he's down. Like, you don't know quite know what you're getting with him unless he's figured something out. Uh, maybe it's pitch sequencing. Maybe he's he's fixed a mechanical issue. I don't know. Things were bad there for a while. He didn't have any value. Now he does. So good for the Tigers for um, capitalizing on that value while he has it, while he only has one year left. So I think it's a smart trade from their point of view as well. Yeah, smart call on the Braves. They they really, it's kind of like the Dodgers a few years back. You know, they knew which guys to keep and they knew which guys to trade. And that's, that's a big valuable skill to have as a team. And there's some luck involved, but I, I think it is a skill of being able to identify who's going to make it and who's going to not and whose value is yeah. higher who, whose value the league perceives as higher than you do is really all it's a question of. Yeah, it's an arbitrage um, game, really. <laughs> That's what exactly. Right. And then on the Tigers perspective, we talked a bit about uh, leading up to the offseason. We talked a bit about kind of the spot they're in. And there's no clear and easy direction to take the team. You know, there's not really enough pieces there to make it worth the rebuild, but also not enough there to really push for competitive competition competitiveness contention that's the word i was looking for contention um so it's kind of that in between yucky no man's land um and i don't think this indicates them moving in either direction it's just hey this is a one year of a reliever we're going to turn him into a prospect we like and even if we decide we want to try and contend we can probably replace him and his with somebody almost as good for not a lot of money not a lot of prospects on our own end so why not just take this deal if we like this prospect yeah i mean they trading from their bullpen makes all the sense in the world because that's kind of where their surplus value now it's not a lot of surplus value but they throw in some cash they get them lloyd that's a good move yep Okay, uh, kind of along those lines, moving from the bullpen for some surplus. The Mets acquired left-handed reliever Brooks Raley, uh, who we had at $2.7 million, from the Tampa Bay Rays in exchange for left-handed pitcher Keyshawn Askew, $2.0 million. Uh, you can mark it on your calendar at least two or three <laughs> trades from the Rays bullpen every year. It's yep. just they're, they're constantly identifying guys who can get outs for them in a situation, and then once they've identified them, they say, okay, you can go to this team now and we'll get the next guy up. And they constantly yeah. have that roster churn. Yeah. Uh, Rayleigh, a serviceable left-hand reliever. The Mets didn't really have one of those, so perfect fit for them. And Askew, I don't know if you if you saw any of the videos going around of this guy yeah. during the trade. It's Askew is a fitting name for him. It's uh, <laughs> he, he throws funky from the left side, and he seems like the type that, oh, yeah, he's just going to dominate for the Rays in a year or two here. Uh, yeah, they see something, and you're looking at those videos. Yeah, I see that too. Like, okay, maybe <laughs> they can work with that. That's some clay they can mold. Yeah, it's just a classic race trade. Mm -hmm. And then last one, very minor deal. 
Uh, the A's acquired right-handed pitcher Chad Smith at $0.2 million from the Rockies in exchange for right-handed pitching prospect Jeff Criswell at $3.5. Um, it's, a, it's a minor overpay by Oakland, according to our model, but there's some error bars there on Criswell. He's had trouble staying healthy, and prospects are always... It's always hard to pin down a specific value on prospects with the kind of time frame of updates we get from our prospect sources. Right. Um, the main main reason I wanted to mention this trade is because I saw a tweet. I can either I can either confirm nor deny the the validity of this tweet, but I did see a tweet that Jeff Criswell went to college with Bill Schmidt's son and was on the same team as his son uh, and Bill Schmidt, the GM of the Rockies, and we all know how the Rockies like to operate with their keeping it in the family type vibes or nepotism. So <laughs> it's, it's a curious, and I'm not going to be raking them over the coals for this one. You know, Criswell was a, I think second round pick an interesting enough prospect and they turned a depth arm and Chad Smith into him. So good for them. I'm not saying this is a bad move, but just funny. It's just funny how consistent yeah. the Rockies are. So Bill Schmidt's son is in the front office, right? Isn't he like the scouting director or something? Isn't he? Or an I think that sounds right. Yeah. And so he's basically just traded for his, for his college buddy. Right. So I don't know what to make of that either. Other than, I mean, my obvious take is that the A's have lost confidence in Criswell. Maybe they got impatient with the uh, health. Um, he has been, you know, there was some buzz about him on some prospect lists in the past. So it's interesting that they gave up on him when, you know, you could argue that they should hold on to any sort of arms with upside they get. And they traded him for a 27 year old reliever, which means they probably lost some sort of faith in Criswell. Um, but maybe they also see something in that 27-year-old reliever that they can they can work with. So, you know, it's like we said, there's there's area bars there, so it's fine. Yeah, and at this point, you or I could go audition and and try and walk on and be on the A's pitching staff. So <laughs> they got they got plenty of room to work with. All right, so those are the only trades for these last couple weeks. I'm really hoping we get a lot more these next couple weeks. I'm itching a little bit, uh, but we have tons of free agents to talk about. Uh, we're gonna. We already kind of previewed the market and, and mentioned some of these guys, but we're going to start with the biggest deals, work our way down, get to some of these teams that have been particularly active, and just get to as much as we can in the next hour. So start with the largest one, both in terms of contract and in terms of stature. That's uh, the Yankees signing Aaron Judge, bringing him back on a nine-year, $360 million deal. That's a $40 million average annual value, which is a record for position players. It's also just the largest contract for for anyone at $360 million. Just a, uh, a gigantic deal for a gigantic man. And it's unsurprising. You know, it, it's it seemed like it was pretty solidly the Yankees are giants people were speculating about that as early as the all-star break this year something around then that the giants would be the biggest competition for judge and then at the 11th hour it seems like the Padres swooped in and we can talk more about that when we talk about the guy they did get um, and where all this money is coming from for them but judge back to the Yankees just makes sense it's hard to picture what their team and lineup looks like without him it just would have been so bare bones without him. It, it, it was looking pretty bare bones at the second half of the season last year when he really, he was the only one hitting. And if you took that out, I don't know how you build a contender. So yeah, uh, uh, there's just a lot of different ways to say, yep, makes sense. Uh, but do you want to talk more about the money and, and years yeah. aspect of this? And especially for a guy as old as Aaron judge is, he's not a, not a 26 year old. He's, he's going to be a Yankee into his late thirties, almost 40. Yeah, but look, um, 
teams know that. Teams know that the surplus is up front and there's negative value at the back. And so they're they're willing to pay that price for what they're going to get now and in the next few years. So in our model, you know, Judge is projected for 6.8 war, and it's going to skew a little bit higher than that based on his, his offensive numbers, which are ridiculous. Um, long story short, what I'm trying to make is that <clears throat> one year of Judge would be about 68 million in 2023, and the next year would be 61, and the year after that is in the 50s, and the 49, 41. Like you, you're you're way above 40, and then as the contract goes goes on, you know, then it gets starts to get under. Then he's worth 32, so he's got some negative there around 2028. 20, he's probably a DH at that point, and then 24, and then 15 and seven. So as as the the contract peters out. He looks a little bit more like Miguel Cabrera does today, where it's going to be a lot of negative value there at the back end, but a lot of um, surplus value on the positive side on the front end. And it works out actually almost perfectly. We have our model at 360.9 in in fair value, and he's getting 360. So it makes sense. Um, so I think, um, you know, I saw the reports that the Padres would have given him a little bit more, maybe for an extra year or two. Um, but it didn't sound like when you crunch the numbers in the AV is going to be all that different. So I think you just stayed home. But and from a valuation standpoint, even though it looks ridiculous, it's really not considering he just came off of an 11 war year at 62 home runs. And he's, you know, he's really, you know, he checks all the boxes, right? Good guy, stays in shape, versatile, can play a good outfield. I mean, what, he's going to be the captain. What more do you want? You know, you're getting, you're getting your money's worth there. It goes to the argument of how much should the 11 war season adjust his baseline going forward? And we don't have an answer to that. There's there's just not enough data points to reliably say, yeah, when a guy who's typically a six win player, seven win player pops off and has an 11 win season uh, going forward, you should expect him to be an eight win player or a nine win player. Like there's no there's no data points for that. It just doesn't happen. 11 war seasons don't grow on trees. So there's always True. going to be a little bit of uncertainty here. If he returns to being, you know, the kind of six-ish win player he was for a while, that's a very good player and, you know, one with maybe an outside shot at the Hall of Fame if he keeps that up for enough years. But it's going to be a bit of a disappointing contract if he just in 2023 returns to that baseline. However, yeah, if, but... he, if this 11 wins is his new baseline, then it's a steal of a contract. And so no. it's all just placing that where it is, you know. And yeah, no, but, but it's kind of a guessing yeah. game. But any good model is going to keep in mind the track record and kind of the baseline. And he, yes, it raised his baseline, obviously. Um, but all the models suggest he's not going to be an 11 war player. He's going to be a six ish war player. But that's still really great and abnormal, right? So you're, and given inflation, what we talked about, you know, that's still worth a lot of money. So it's still valid, I think. Right. And. I think what you are confident about is this isn't a guy who's going to totally pumpkin next year or right. honestly for a few years, you're not expecting him to collapse and, Oh no. Oh my goodness. Now he's Chris Davis. Like, I, I don't think no. that's the, the player we're talking about. I think he's going to be more here. like Frank Thomas when he's 35, mm -hmm. 36, you know, big, big lumbering guy still has really good pop, you know, or Nelson Cruz when he's 38, you know, he's going to be one of those guys. Yeah, I think from an offensive perspective, Nelson Cruz is a really good comp. I, I, I see yeah. a lot of similarities there from just yeah. sheer control of the plate, offensive dominance. Yeah, so uh, it, it seems like uh, from what was reported, you know, even the Giants might have had a larger offer in terms of AAV, but he just wanted to be a Yankee and, and they called 
uh, Cashman Steinbrenner and just said, hey, give us the ninth year and we'll sign on. And they, they said, sure, we'll pull the trigger. And like yep. you said, the report was that the Padres offered him a much longer deal. Um, and I, I think there was even one report that said that they offered him like, was it like 12 or 14 years or something like that, just to stretch the money even further across. Yeah, and, and, and the league. But they of... knew the league, yeah, would have nixed yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, because they know that's just being done to skirt around the luxury tax restrictions. Um, right. But <clears throat> yeah. It's it's interesting that the Padres kind of jumped in here. And, and obviously, we're going through these deals in order of magnitude, not necessarily in chronological order here. And so this was after the Padres missed out. They were they were pushing pretty hard for Trey Turner, who we'll talk about in just a second. And they missed out on him. And, you know, they said, OK, if, we, if we've gotten approved for all this money, let's just go get another star. Who's the next guy? Oh, Aaron Judge. Sure, we can find a spot for him. <laughs> I think that's kind of the mentality well, the Padres went into. This yeah, they could. They, they had an open air outfield slot. They could move Soto to left and put it. They could have put Judge in right. So I could see that. And uh, yeah, okay, let's just OK, let's just talk about the Padres. We'll talk about Turner after. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so what's interesting about the Padres is we just continue to be surprised by AJ Preller and you'd, you'd figure at some point, I guess I'll speak for myself. I'd figure at some point I would learn from this and <laughs> stop letting Preller surprise me. But you know, I'm the one who wrote the whole, like, Hey, it's not possible to make a Juan Soto trade. And then guess what? Preller made a Juan Soto trade. And then I was like, Hey, you know, there, there's a lot of money on the books here. I don't think they have room for many other moves or extending Soto or anything. They're kind of set and ugh, they're losing a lot of guys this next off season. What's this next team going to look like? And then what do they do? They bring back Nick Martinez. They bring back Robert Suarez. Both of those guys cost more money than they used to. And then they say, yeah, whatever. We'll also bring in Xander Bogarts. And we'll also, you know, we were trying to bring in Trey Turner and trying to bring in Aaron Judge. So I don't know where the limit is in San Diego. Maybe Preller has a bit of the Dombrowski to him where he just has enough buy-in that he's just able to get these, get the owner to continue to approving large contracts, which if he does, good for him. Um, but the other factor here, especially with kind of the surge in the market we've seen this offseason, is Manny Machado has an opt-out after the year. Mm -hmm. and that seemed like a like a no-brainer for him to stay you know he was making 30 million dollars a year that's pretty good money but it's it's not so much of a no-brainer now he's he's a phenomenal player still he's aging very well there's not a whole lot out there at third base obviously next offseason he'd contend with Rafael Devers but Devers is a much less stable third baseman much worse defensively uh, there's much more risk of him shifting to first base in a few years than you're really considering at all for Machado. And so you wonder if that opt-out is going to happen potentially and, and <laughs> unrelated, but you also wonder if maybe Nolan Arenado is kicking himself a little bit for not opting out this year. I wonder if he would have actually beaten what he has remaining on the contract. I think it's in this market, it's a, it's a possibility, right? Um, but yeah, the, the Machado factor of it is a, is a big deal and, and some of the uncertainty with Tatis and you know their content their window of contention is right now and so don't worry about year 10 year 11 don't worry about year six year seven year eight uh, worry about right now 2023 2024 and Xander Bogarts who's I guess I should mention the contract terms <laughs> it's 11 years uh 280 million dollars total 5 million signing bonus and then 25 million a year for the 11 seasons with no opt-outs, so just straight through all the way. Uh, but adding him to Soto, Machado, Tatis, and, and going from there, that's formidable. Yeah. 
so a couple things. First of all, from a standpoint of valuation, our model does not see it as a an overpay. In fact, there's a tiny bit of surplus there. Uh, we have them at 286.4 for those 11 years, and we signed for 280 uh, because five million of that was uh, a signing bonus. Uh, he's really getting paid 275, which you mentioned. So if he were ever traded, he would have a little bit more surplus. So, so I don't see it falling off, and that's even when we factor in. Um, moving to second base, which is likely, and we have him doing that um, at age 33, so in a few years. But what's interesting about Bogarts is he's always been like money. He's just consistent, 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 really good hitter, and he had a really good fielding year. I mean, he's just a good player overall. Like uh, a lot of players have ups and downs, and so you have to kind of split the difference. There's no splitting the difference here. He's just good, 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 good. And so you can count on him. You know, he just his baseline is higher because there were no variations in there. Um, so he's playing at, he's basically a five or six war player for the last couple of years. Now it'll go down to fours and threes as he gets older. But, um, but you, you have a sense of confidence that he'll continue to deliver. Yeah. And I think there's something to be said about that. And just the amount of flexibility that is there, if, and when he is moving off of shortstop, because you have Tatis there forever. Uh, and, and he's a primary shortstop. You, you imagine at some point they might be looking into extending Jake Cronenworth and he's a versatile and valuable defender. They have Haseon Kim there for a little bit longer, and he's a, a plus-plus defender as well. And so there's just a lot of flexibility with this team. This isn't yeah. this isn't your the Red Sox and you're signing. And I guess the Red Sox are a poor example because they have a couple solid infielders coming up through the system. But this isn't your you're signing Bogarts with the expectation that he is going to be a plus defender and, and needs to be a plus defender for a handful of years to make the deal work. That's not what we're looking at here. It's it's a right much more flexible situation and and they can kind of bake that expectation in yeah i do like you know i think preller said in one story you know or maybe it was the owner but you know they care more about um getting good players right and then they'll figure out where they fit defensively and so they need they wanted another bat and they're going to make it work um reading between the lines i do think it sends a message to tatis in particular because he obviously had his maturity issues and you know, they had to sit him down last year after the last one and, you know, with the pet suspension. And anyway, it sends a message to him like, OK, we're going to keep going. You're either getting on the train and being an adult or you're not. And a lot of people are speculating that they might trade him now because of this signing. I personally don't see that happening. I'm just speculating. But I think they're more likely when he comes back to figure out a place for him, probably in the outfield. Uh, but who knows? Things could change. Injuries happen. And to your point, maybe Machado opts out. Maybe he gets a better deal somewhere else. And so, you know, one of those guys moves to third. And so they'll work it out. Um, but it does send a message to the team saying, hey, we're serious. We're not relying on you. You know, you can be part of this or, or not because we're going to be good either way. And I think the other sort of thing I like about this is, you know, the Padres have never won a World Series. If you look at their history, they've only been in it twice. And the last time was, what, 1998 or so? So, um, you know, I got to give a lot of credit to their owner because that's, he's spending and he clearly wants to, to, to drive that home. And so does Preller. So, OK, <laughs> you know, it's 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 World Series championship or bust for them now. So it's fun to see. Yeah. And I've asked this question so many times on the podcast. I'm a broken record on this. But where is the end? Like, where is their limit? Where's their budget? Because. There is right now it is just climbing and climbing. And guess what? I'm looking at roster resource. Luis Campusano is their DH and Jose Asokar is their starting left fielder. And I don't think that's 
in the nope. plans for them heading into this season. And guess what? Adrian Morey-Hohen is their fifth starter, and Nick Martinez is their fourth starter. I don't think that's what they nope. want penciled in either. Nope. But in order to really substantially upgrade on those guys, right now their payroll is at $235 million. They're going to need to add, what, another $20, $30 million onto that in 2023 salary, either that or make some trades and just totally gut the farm system. Uh, yeah, there's not much it, left to trade from the farm though, mm-hmm. so they're gonna have to spend. And this, you know, they could trade their top prospect. He's got some capital, you know, Jackson Merrill, uh, but mm-hmm. they probably don't want to. But at this point, look, they're all in with their chips, so why not? Yeah, I, I guess I, I guess it's time. I guess I respect it. I guess if you, <laughs> if you have, you know, Bogarts and Tatis, and then hopefully Soto and Machado lined up for at least the next year and hopefully longer then yeah maybe maybe you do feel a little more comfortable trading a jackson merrill with yeah we're losing the six years of team control on him but if we have four bona fide superstars that we're going to try and anchor at the top of our lineup with maybe we don't care as much about that um anyway speculation and padres aside uh great deal for bogarts i bet he's very happy with himself of, of getting the 11 years and, and this much money he's another one of those guys he and judge both just boosted uh boosted their contract value this year for sure and there's the whole red Sox of it all the contract extension debacle of last <laughs> off season and throughout the season and we could get into that uh we can maybe if, if we have time later on we'll discuss some of the red Sox other moves and and maybe get into that as well and whether they bungled it here with bogarts or if, if i don't know uh save that for later okay let's move on to trey turner uh, the Phillies, another 11-year contract. This one's for $300 million total. Um, it's it's just another big bopper to the... The Phillies are, are kind of the Padres East, <laughs> it feels like. Uh, maybe not quite as all in there, but reuniting Turner with both Harper and Schwarber and just building on this core that made that fantastic World Series run last year. They, they've built themselves, they've Dombrowski'd themselves into being a really formidable team. And, you know, like I said, they kind of snuck into the playoffs, but now they just look really solid. You know, there's still some holes there, but every team has holes somewhere. And they really look like they can compete with the best at this point. And I think Turner's a, a guy who will age pretty well. He kind of is just good at everything. And he's got some positional flexibility if and when that time comes. And... Yeah, I, I love the fit. He was always the one that made the most sense to me out of out of all the shortstops that could have gone there. Yeah, I mean, again, from a valuation perspective, I think this is a pretty fair deal. I know the, the Padres offered him a little bit more. That probably would have been a little bit of an overpay, and I know there were state taxes involved. I saw some pieces about that. Um, in other words, he pays less in taxes in Pennsylvania than he does in California, so that was a factor. That put him off if you do that calculation. There's only a difference of about $9 million. He's an East Coast kind of guy. His wife's from New Jersey. So he thought, okay, I'm going to stick with the Phillies. But he's with Bryce Harper. So that probably played a role as well. Um, so it's a good move for him. So it's, from a valuation standpoint, it's pretty close to fair value. So um, depending on if you want to overpay for a star a little bit, you can say there's a little bit more bang for the buck there. But it's it's close enough to matter. Um, so I think it was a good move from a from a fit standpoint. I will say it's curious when you look at Brian, Bryson Stott, who probably has more value defensively than offensively, which is normally where you would put a shortstop because you t- typically want glove there. And then we've talked about this glove at shortstop, bat at second. So instead they're putting his glove at second. So we'll see how that works out. 
but I don't think they're worried about that. They just wanted Trey Turner, and I think it's a good move for them. Yeah, and I, I wanted to find an opportunity in this episode to bring it up, and I guess this is as good a time as any. Uh, the the old, I, I believe it's an Andrew Freeman quote of, if you're rational on every free agent and, and the offers you're making to them, you're going to finish in third on, on every free agent. Yeah, and that's what's happening it, with a lot of teams, yeah. Yeah, and, and so even in these cases where you do see a bit of an overpay here and there, or, ooh, I don't know if 11 years is the smartest idea, or whatever the case is, just keep that in mind, you know? If you're if you're the Yankees, you have a lot, and like we said, that, that deal ended up being very fair, but if you are on the fence about that ninth year, if you are on the fence about going all the way to 40 million AAV, and you just think about what he means to your team, what he means to your fan base, and what it would mean to have him be a lifelong Yankee and, and the captain. And, and you know, oh, all we have to do is just one more year, and that gets it done. Can we can we just do that? And you're not thinking about, oh, it might be $5 million under under <laughs> underwater in, in contract value. You're not thinking right. about that. You're pulling the trigger and, and getting your guy. And so that's a factor more so, I'd say, on the free agent market than on the trade market. But it's certainly a factor, and keep that in mind that just because – keep it all in mind also that there's a ton of variance on these deals. You know, unless it's one of these contracts that just looks terrible from day one, and we have seen some of those for sure. Uh, we've we've had questions the whole time about Javi Baez or Eric Hosmer or, or some of these other deals. Those certainly exist where it's like, ugh, that's, that's off by a lot. But other than that, it's it's – when you stretch it over nine, 10, 11 years, and you're telling me that, oh, it's $10 million off, that's yeah. a million a year. That's a fraction of a win above replacement in projection per year. Exactly. That's... And yeah, and, and no one can predict the future. We're not, you know, we're not soothsayers here. We're just using models based on typical aging curves, typical injury risk curves, that sort of thing. You know, and there's variance in each one of those years. So it could go, it could skew whatever. We talked a little bit about the Winker trade from last year where we thought he was going to be better and Suarez was coming off a bad year. And so they totally flipped. And so that can happen in free agency as well. Yeah. So especially when you're thinking about those long-term deals, I really got to keep that in mind. Uh, but pivoting to a couple shorter-term deals, let's talk about the Jacob deGrom of it all. So Rangers signed Jacob deGrom to a five-year contract, $185 million guarantee. Uh, this one had me emailing John and just saying, whoa, deGrom. <laughs> that, that was all I needed to say. And wow, deGrom. <laughs> it's, a, it's a massive contract for a guy who's kind of had trouble making more than 15 starts a year the last couple seasons. Uh, when he when he's on the field, he's the best pitcher in the world, and it's really hard to argue against that. Uh, but it's also just been hard to get him on the field. And so there is kind of a weird, complicated, vesting, conditional option at the end of this contract that I'm not even going to begin to try to explain. It, it basically goes, if he stays healthy, he can get more money. If he doesn't stay healthy, the Rangers can choose to keep him uh, at, at a lower rate for a sixth year. So hard to really factor that too far into the into how we evaluate this deal at this present time but for now it's five years 185 million dollars the rangers get their big guy as they're trying to push they get their big front of the rotation guy to go with their boppers in the lineup that they added last off season and seager and Semyon. and it looks like they really just want to force themselves to contend which is 
it's fun. If nothing else, it's fun. Uh, where is this one falling on in terms of value? Because that's a lot of money for a guy already pretty well into his 30s. Yeah, it is. Um, but it's actually closer than I expected when you factor in, um, you know, okay. So this is maybe my opportunity to say, look, dollars per war is not linear. And we've talked about this a little bit here and there, and I don't want to get too wonky, but um, it's not a straight line. You can't just say, well, it's $8 million per war for everybody because teams will overpay for superstars. And so the curve kind of goes up. at the, So there's a higher dollars per war at the top end of the market until you reach a really ridiculous point, in which case it starts to flatten out. Um, so you have to factor that in with some of these superstars, and we do. That's point number one. Point number two um, is you have to say, okay, look, if you're getting DeGrom, you're trying to make the playoffs, right? So you're factoring in that October bonus, which we've also often referred to. And I could apply that as well to Turner and, you know, Bogarts and Judge, and because they're all going to be there, you know, for their teams who are they're trying to win, they're trying to be competitive in the playoffs. The Rangers clearly have a plan; they're truly trying to get there. They always have a long way to go, but they're they're not signing the best pitcher in the world just to kind of like finish in last place. That's not their intention at all. So they have other moves coming. So if you say, okay, and I know I'm, I'm squinting here a little bit, but if you factor in that also they're going to use him in the playoffs, and why wouldn't they? You know, they're trying to get there. Then it actually becomes very close. Um, and even after you knock him down for all the injury risk, knock him down for, you know, the oblique injuries and the arm and the whatever, you know, because uh, he's ridiculous. He's it, injury risk is ridiculously high when you look at how much he's pitched in the last two years. Even after that, you've still got some surplus at the top and some negative at the bottom, so it's not off by that much. So I'm squinting a little bit and making a case a little bit, but I can see it from the Rangers' point of view. should also mention that the Rangers' owner um, fired their last president of baseball operations, John Daniels, because he was getting impatient. Um, we, know, we don't know. We've talked about it. We're speculating a little bit. But there's no getting around the fact that they built a new stadium. They built all these shops and restaurants around it. It's kind of a whole entertainment center. And then COVID happened. And then, you know, they've got a bad team. And so attendance was down. And so they're getting really impatient. They really want to build a winner. They jumped the market last year with Seager and Simeon. They're jumping, well, I wouldn't say jumping, but they're they're going for it again with some big name signings. So they're really trying to build a winner. They're really trying to recoup that investment, get the fans back in the seats in the entertainment complex. And I think that's a big motivation factor as well. So I don't want to know whatever the other implications are in terms of revenue, but I know they need a star to attract some of those fans. And so there's something, something there of value as well that I can see. I think there's also an argument similar to what we, what we'll probably say at least a little bit about Otani next off season is that there, there just aren't any other Jacob deGroms. Like, if, if you want Jacob deGrom, this is the one you can get. <laughs> you know, and, and as yeah. far as a comparable pitcher to Jacob deGrom, it's really hard to develop one of those yourself. It's really hard to trade for one of those, and it's really hard to get one of those in free agency. So yeah. if you've decided you want a Jacob deGrom, and this is just what he's going to cost you, that's kind of just what you have to pay. Yeah, and to your earlier point with the Friedman quote, yeah, you, you know, yeah, if you want to grab, you know, you're, you're not going to pay like the the paper value necessarily because you're finishing third. So the Rangers went for it. So I give them credit for that. Yeah, and the, the, it also lines up fairly well with their other big contracts of Semyon and Seeger, where 
you're still expecting Semyon and Seager to be fairly productive. Maybe they're starting to dip a little bit negative, or maybe they're just barely positive value by this by the end of the DeGrom contract, but you're still expecting them to be strong contributors. So you're not necessarily, obviously you're looking at adding up all those salaries and that's how much you have on the books that year, but you're not looking at it as all being dead money. Even if DeGrom falls apart, ages horribly, whatever, uh, you're, you're probably not going to have all three of those be completely underwater contracts at the same time. So there's something there. Yeah. And to your other point about, you know, how often do you see a DeGrom on the market? When you looked at their rotation before this happened, it was not good. I mean, you you know, John Gray and Dane Dunning and three guys you never heard of. I mean, this was not a winning rotation. So they knew they had to prioritize that. And now they've got an ace at the top. They just, I know you're going to jump the gun here, but they signed another pitcher or two. Probably going to, you know, totally restock that rotation because that was a big weak point for them. So, And I, I think they've got more moves in them to improve the whole roster. Yeah, they did also sign Andrew Haney, so we can just yep. talk about that very briefly at uh, two years, $20 million. Uh, and I think there's, uh, is it an option there as well? Uh, let me get that pulled up. I, I know he has the potential to earn more than that. There's some incentives. And reportedly, he had a, he had a ton of interest as a free agent and a ton of offers on the table. I think people viewed him as a cheaper alternative to the DeGrom, Verlander, Rodon, etc. Mm-hmm. Um well, he's yeah, not in so that it's... tier, obviously. Um, so he's, you know, he's a number three-ish four starter, you know, mm-hmm. but, you know, fairly, fairly reliable yeah. at this point. Yeah. I, I was actually reading the wrong uh, portion of this chart. It's a two-year, $25 million deal that he received. Yeah, and, and that comes up pretty close. We have him at 23.4 for those two years. So it's mm-hmm. it's fine. And obviously, he's not a, a picture of health either. So <laughs> it's, I don't know how many innings combined you can expect from Haney and DeGrom, but... This is they're going to be doing more of this for sure is just continuing to add these types of arms to fill out the rotation to fill out their roster because they really don't have you know they have some interesting players on the farm but it's not like they have a whole wave that's ready at the big league level necessarily they have a lot of guys right. who have debuted and didn't look good and a lot of guys who haven't debuted yet so they're in a bit of a weird spot to be spending all this money but like we said they're trying to jump start it they got the stadium and they they want to win and this is one way to do it yeah, and you know their pitching prospects have struggled a little bit. Um, Cole Wynn was their top pitching prospect last year. He had a dreadful season, so his stock has gone down. Um, you know, Jack Leiter was a one of the top draft choices. He had a little bit of a rough start as well. You know, prospect evaluators are still optimistic about him, but there's some questions now with him. So, like they needed, they couldn't rely on bringing him up from the farm. They had to buy pitching. So that was clear. Mm-hmm. All right, where did uh, now we're moving on to the team that lost Degrom here and what they did in response? Uh, the Mets went crazy. We we alluded to this earlier with Cohen, <laughs> and it's 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 a Padre situation. We don't know where the money ends. We don't know if the money ends or if they just go get what they want. Uh, but I'll just run through these all, and we can we can break them down individually if we want. But Nimmo, Brandon Nimmo, outfielder, eight-year deal, $162 million, no trade clause. Justin Verlander, he gets an $86.66 million guarantee on a two-year deal. And if he pitches 140 innings in 2024, he gets a $35 million player option. So that one could be even larger. Kodai Senga, this was just reported, five-year, $75 million deal. 
Jose Quintana gets a two-year, $26 million deal, and, and we'll throw $10 million on a one-year deal to David Robertson, too. Why not? And so what you're looking at in totality is they brought back Diaz, they brought back Nimmo, they replaced DeGrom with Verlander, and then they brought in Kodai Senga and Jose Quintana to replace Bassett and, uh, was there another free agent arm they lost? Uh, Taiwan Walker, yes. Uh, to replace, replace Bassett and Walker, and then they add to their bullpen with Robertson. So really, you know, because it's the free agent market, and because they had some of these guys on arbitration deals or just cheaper contracts in general, the team got a lot more expensive. But really, it's a fairly lateral move from a team construction standpoint. They just kind of replaced all the free agents that yeah. they were expected to lose in a way. Yeah, they did. Starting with Verlander again, same same points apply that I just made with Degrom. You don't you don't buy Verlander coming off a Cy Young award and not expecting him to contribute in the playoffs after, especially in conjunction with the other moves. So they're clearly expecting October performance, which he delivers on typically, especially lately. So uh, just came out for World Series win. So you've got to add the October premium and sort of the star premium there as well. In which case, eighty six is fine in terms of valuation. Um, now, I will say um, it's an interesting case in terms of aging curves because you don't see a lot of four year old, 40 year olds pitching the way he does. And, you know, there's a bit of survivor bias because if you say, okay, well, he's the exception, then, you know, like you can't apply, you can't say, okay, everybody's going to be as successful as he is at age 40 because almost nobody is. So he is the exception. He clearly has figured out how to take care of his body, much like Tom Brady does in football. You know, he's just one of those guys that kind of knows what he's doing. And, and even after after Tommy John comes back from it healthy and, and delivers an amazing season. So you got to give it to him. So in other words, his typical injury risk for age 40 is not typical of the average player. He's a bit of a unicorn that way. But we're not going to change our model just because he's pitching well at, at that age. Because you don't see a whole lot of other 40-year-olds in it. So I'll just make that point. So we adjust for that because uh, he's not a typical 40-year-old, basically. Um, Nemo's contract was fine. I mean, most of these, you know, I'm not seeing huge, a lot of huge overpays. It's just that they're combining them and going way over luxury tax limits. They're just blowing the roof off of luxury tax limits. They don't care because Cohen is, look, his net worth has gone up another $3.4 this year. This is nothing to him. Nothing. It's a toy. So it's 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 couch change. So why not? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the biggest difference here between the Mets and the Padres, well, there's plenty of differences. Big one is, yeah, the Cohen has unlimited budget, unlimited pockets, and the Padres don't necessarily have that, even though their, their recent moves would seem to disagree. Uh, but we talked about how Jose Asokar is their left fielder, starting left fielder, and, and Luis Campusano at DH. The Mets don't have that, though. They now have a strong team top to bottom. You can maybe upgrade their bench a little bit. You could maybe add another reliever or two. But that's really stuff on the margins. They, they have a complete roster now. Yeah, it costs a little bit more than it did last year, but this is a roster that won 101 games last year, and... Obviously, they, they missed the playoffs. They finished in a tie. Or, excuse me. <laughs> they didn't miss the playoffs. They didn't win the division. Uh, they finished in a tie with the Braves. The Braves won the tiebreaker. And so they had to go to the three-game wildcard round, and they got bounced. But that's because they tied. And, and because it, for the first year in however long, there was no tiebreaker game. Instead, it was just based off of how many games you'd won head-to-head. -head. And so they had a very strong team last year. They're bringing back almost the same team couple pieces switched out could be upgrades could be downgrades but at least similar names 
and they kept their entire farm intact. They haven't traded anyone. Uh, catcher is a weak position for them between Tomas Nito and James McCann, but they have Francisco Alvarez on his way up, and he's one of the best catching prospects in the game. So I they could sit back and be pretty much done at this point. I think we will see them add another arm or two, a bench bat. Maybe they even add a starter and just, just as a depth option because, yeah, Verlander, Scherzer, that's maybe not two guys you want to be too confident in holding up all season long, just given their age. And Carlos Carrasco hasn't necessarily been a picture of health. And Kodai Senga, you don't, you, you can't be entirely confident on what to expect there. So maybe they add another starter and, and just have that flexibility. I think they add a couple relievers. Maybe they add a bench bat, but they're not. They don't have a whole lot left that they need to do. Whereas the Padres, absolutely do. Yeah, although there are rumors now flying around that they're in the Carlos Correa market, which is interesting. And the idea would be to put, play him at third use Escobar as kind of a floating utility guy um, and trade Beatty. <clears throat> and so that's an interesting sort of thought, thought exercise. Hmm. Apparently Correa and Lindor are good friends and Correa would move to third only if he was playing next to Lindor, he said. So there's a, <laughs> so, I don't know. That could be totally false rumors, um, but I wouldn't put past him. I w- wouldn't put it past Cohen for, you know, paying high, high bid for, for Correa in this market. Is Lindor just like the best guy in baseball? Like, like I know everyone loves him, but wasn't it a similar deal with Javi Baez where he was happy to shift over to second base for Lindor? Yeah, right. Well, I think there's a lot of respect for Lindor. He's clearly a great defensive shortstop, you know. Um, so, you know, um, yeah, I think there's something to that. Well, we will see about that. Um, so we, we talked Verlander. We talked Nimmo a bit. Uh, I'm, I'm, and Quintana seems like a fairly reasonable, you know, he was pretty good last season. He's been pretty reliable. Um, and David Robertson, he kind of bounced back in, in his own way and looked like a solid reliever down the stretch. Senga though, I want to talk about Senga a little bit because given the rest of the market, this honestly felt a little bit low on him. Obviously we don't have all of the data points, uh, with as much confidence as we would for, a Jamison Tyone or, or anybody along those lines. Uh, but what what do you think and what does the model think about five years and $75 million for Senga? Uh, we don't have anything in the model. I'm going to say this straight up front. We don't do projections and in, in stuff on Asian imports because there's just, there's just no – the track record is all over the place. I'll just say that. Um, there, it's totally hit and miss, and you know we just haven't invested the time to really figure it out. So I have nothing to say about Senga in terms of valuation. We're going to see how it goes. Um, you know, I trust that the teams have it, but, you know, it, you know, casually you can say, okay, well, it's kind of like AAA, you know, but sometimes they come over and they figure it out and you get Otani or you get Ichiro or you get a superstar. Other times, you know, on the pitching side, you get a Masahiro Tanaka or some other good ones. And then there's a whole bunch of busts, a whole bunch of guys who got signed and just, you know, became Yoshi Tsutsuko or Akiyama or whoever, you know, and they just didn't make it. So I, we just haven't figured that out yet. So I'm just being honest about that. Yeah, and it really feels pretty hit or miss sometimes. And maybe it's anecdotal. Maybe if you actually charted out all in front of me, it would look like a similar distribution as a AAA player. But it feels like either they click and it's like you said, it's an Otani, it's a Tanaka, it's an Ichiro, or they're just a complete miss. And I mean, I guess the only kind of in-between example I can think of is Yusei Kikuchi, where he's 
kind of just a fifth starter and that's all he's really been you know little little bit of back and forth there uh, but yeah it either seems like these guys are very often stars or flame out and they're back overseas within a few years that's yeah seems and, to be you the know, trend and the other pain you know clearly when you know when they sign u.s players they're typically bottom of the barrel u.s players they're fringy guys that you know couldn't quite get a job in the u.s but they get found a job over there you know which means you know that's a cut below the level of competition because they want to sign those guys over there and then they come back um and sometimes they're they they're okay, like a Merrill Kelly or a Chris Blackson. And sometimes they're not. They're just turned right back into a pumpkin like they were. So again, it's it's totally inconsistent data. I don't want to make of it yet, but we'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. Nick Martinez, another guy who came back go. over. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that's that's kind of our hot list that we wanted to get through, and we have a little bit of time left, so let's just keep working through these other ones. Um, I want to specifically call out the kind of mid-rotation market. And so Taiwan Walker, he left the Mets and went to the Phillies for four years and $72 million. Jamison Tyone left the Yankees, went to the Cubs for four years, $68 million. Zach Eflin left the Phillies and went to the Rays for three years and $40 million. And then we can lump Quintana in there. We can lump Nick Martinez, who we mentioned, but he's kind of a his swing man, kind of his own case. Andrew Haney, who we talked about. Uh, Tyler Anderson, who signed early at three years and 39. Um, how do you feel about the mid-rotation market right now? And uh, This is, yeah. Go for it. This is this is where I'm seeing overpays um, because, you know, I mean, just made the, the point that even with inflation, um, uh, well, hold that thought. So made the point that when you're looking at a star, when you're looking at a DeGrom or a Verlander, that's an ace to top your rotation. That's somebody you want pitching for you on the mound in October. That's somebody you're going to overpay for on paper. So you've got to factor them. They're all, you know, in the, in the distribution curve of dollars per war, all favors that, right? All of that makes sense. You're chasing upside there. Uh, but when you get into Taiwan Walker land and Tyone land and a few of these other guys, these are just sort of a, average to above average guys they're easier to replace um they're not going to be leading your rotation in october they're maybe third or fourth maybe coming out of the boat but like you're not going to want to necessarily overpay for these guys right so why are you overpaying for them is the question and we're seeing some of that and it may be just the market is drunk i'm i'm and good for these guys for getting paid but this is where i'm struggling a little bit taiwan walker should not be getting 72 million dollars yeah, that's that's really the biggest one that's come through and been like, man, really? Like that's yeah. what's happening here. I, so I have Ross. I mean, it's Dabrowski, right? Yeah. So you know he's an overspender, so fine. Mm-hmm. But, but I don't think you could trade him at that fire value to mm-hmm. some other, you know, more disciplined team. Yeah, I, I have roster resource pulled up right now. Their their free agent tracker, and they also include their projected WAR. And this is. You know, it's not finalized. Not every projection system has released uh, their 2023 values yet. Uh, but we're looking at the list here of starters. Taiwan Walker is projected for 1.5 wins. Right. Tyone for two. Eflin for 1.4. Anderson for 1.8. Quintana for two. Haney for 2.5. Martin Perez, 1.9. And obviously, you know, yeah. these are projections. They're kind of 50th percentile. And obviously, there's a whole lot of wiggle room here. And, and you know, there's a wide error bar on war wide margin of error but i I think it it just supports the point that these are all similar pitchers and yes 
I think Taiwan Walker and Jamison Tyone do have a much higher upside than Jose Quintana, but is it that much that you're committing that much more money to them over that much longer a period exactly. of time when Quintana is pretty likely to have similar production to them in 2023? Yeah. I mean, look, the, all of these guys now have a track record with a lot of data points. They are who they are. So why are you overpaying for these guys? I mean, unless there's some like, you know, okay, maybe there's some market inefficiency. I will allow for that. That says, okay, well, there's just not a lot of good starters. Maybe there's not a lot of pitching prospects coming up that we can count on. So we have to pay for these middle rotation guys. You know, maybe there's a shortage, in other words, that's causing a demand versus supply kind of thing. That's all I can figure. Otherwise, why would you overspend for these guys? Yeah, I agree. Okay, two other names I want to talk about, and uh, we can go a little quicker on these. Jose Abreu. Uh, the, the Astros signed him for three years, $58.5 million, And people were definitely pretty surprised about that. Abreu is 36. Um, he's It's been impressive how he's just kind of kept chugging along like this. I thought he was done yeah. a few years ago, and he really brought it back. And he's just been kind of a consistent offensive performer. Not much of a defender, first base only. But obviously that was a big position of need for Houston. Really their only significant position of need. And... With uh, excuse me, not Heimblum. Uh, with James Click out of the mix and most of his front office kind of torn apart, and Jim Crane really taking over going forward, it seems like they're just primed to make these more traditional moves that Jim Crane and and Jeff Bagwell and these other guys would would support of Abreu. Yeah, we'll give him the third year. We'll give him close to sixty mil because he gets RBIs. <laughs> that kind of thing is is really what this move feels like. Yeah. Uh... I mean, he is an upgrade over Yuli Gurriel. They just won the World Series, so they're a little bit drunk as well. Um, and they don't have an analytical guy in the front office. Jim Crane is not a baseball guy. He's the one kind of running the show from all the reports. Jeff Bagwell, you know, is more of a traditional guy. He even came out and said, yeah, <laughs> stats are fine, but I'm an old school guy. So, like, they're not paying attention to the numbers necessarily, nor models. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. Maybe I'm overthinking it, but... It doesn't look like they are. They're just like, okay, I want that guy. Okay, I want that guy. We just won the World Series. Fine. And it's not that far off, really. I mean, we have a Abreu at like 53. And also, I think he's another one of these guys that takes care of his body and is a kind of a, you know, even if he ages, he's still kind of a Nelson Cruz guy. He's going to continue to hit. You know, it seems like he's always hit. So, okay. <laughs> you know, it's fine. You're a little bit off on value, but you're okay. You don't care. Yeah, I'm... I'm with you there. I think it might not look the best by the third year of this, and I'm not sure exactly if there's as much surplus up front as, as there have been in some of these other deals we've been discussing like that yeah. to kind of compensate for what might be just a burned last year, but we shall see. Yeah. Um, let's. Uh, we got about 15 minutes left. Let's just kind of go lightning round through a few of these guys and teams that we should probably hit on. Uh, Cody Bellinger got non-tendered at his 18-ish million dollar uh, mm -hmm. arbitration estimate and ended up signing with the Cubs for 17.5. What do you make of that? Way overpay. I mean, the Dodgers are one of the smartest organizations. They, you know, it was their guy and they didn't want to pay him 18 million. So why are you paying him 17.5? I mean, that's basically the same thing. It's a rounding error. Our model has him worth 9.1. Now, granted, these are just numbers and they're based on sort of, okay, he's been bad the last two years. Yes, he was an MVP a couple of years before that, but the you know, the more he's bad, the more those numbers are going to go down. So it's, and it generally works out pretty well that way. Unless you're seeing something you can fix, which maybe they are, if they're confident they can fix him, 
then it makes sense. But if he's just like, okay, it's, you know, trot him out there and see what he does and hope for the best, yeah, it's an overpay. If he's really all that fixable, don't you think the Dodgers would have done it? Exactly. They're, they're very, and I'm not saying that they're perfect by any means, but they have a consistent track record of fixing hitters. Max Muncy, Justin Turner, AJ Pollock to an extent, tons of other guys that they they can they really know what their stuff there. They know player development. They know hitting. It's it's concerning that they're the team that couldn't figure out Bellinger, and now other teams are going to take a shot. But yeah, definitely seems like more than he should have gotten. Um, but yeah, uh, let's let's continue down the list. Wilson Contreras. I feel like we need to talk about him. He's the biggest free agent we haven't discussed yet, other than a mention here and there. He gets five years, eighty-seven point five million from the Cardinals. Uh, what do you think of that, and how much of a role do you think the likely future implementation of an automated strike zone might have played here in this deal? It's totally fair. Um, in fact, it you know, look, the AAV is fine. In fact, I, you know, it might be a little a touch low um, for Contreras. It's like 17, right? Um, it comes up exactly fair in our model, 87.8 against 87.5. Um, and that's including, you know, the fact that he, he may become a DH. So um, I think it's what's weird to me is that, you know, they just he's supposedly the replacement for Yachty and Yachty was obviously an amazing defensive catcher. Now he slipped a little bit in his later years, but he still like knew the pitchers, was super smart. He was the on-field general. Contreras is not that kind of guy. He's more of a hitter. You know, he can still throw out runners. He's got an arm, but, you know, his framing's not great. But then again, to your point, the framing's probably going to go away as a thing in a year or so. So maybe that's what they were factoring in. Like, maybe that doesn't matter. So they can live with a guy whose defensive skills have eroded a little bit. Now, um, he is getting a little bit older. He's, what, 30? He was 30 this year. So this is for his 31 to 35 years. Catchers typically start to show wear and tear in their early theories, in their, excuse me, early 30s. So, and that's why I said maybe he's going to end up being a DH. So, um, and they don't know what they have in uh, Yvonne Herrera, although I don't think they have a lot of confidence in him because why would they have done this if they thought Herrera was the heir apparent to Molina? So it doesn't speak well of their confidence of him. You know, they were in the market for Sean Murphy as well in the trade market, which we can talk about as well. Um, So clearly they don't see a future necessarily solution coming from the farm, which is why they gave Contreras five years is what I'm guessing. Yeah. And Contreras does have some flexibility, first base, left field, DH, if, if Herrera does surprise them and earn himself some playing time. Um, Also, I saw it theorized that, yeah, while he's not as great of a defender, one of his kind of niche moves is he he back picks more than anyone else in the game he throws behind runners and with the new pickoff rules where there's a limit on the number of pickoffs and with the pitch clock and you figure that might make it a little bit easier for runners to take bigger leads and and be more aggressive maybe that's a more valuable skill to have of being able to keep them on their toes throw behind them Uh, so maybe he generates some value there which bit of a stretch not maybe not something i'd quantify and and really commit millions of dollars to yep i believe he has this skill and it's going to be worth this much money so we're going to pay him this much more i'm not saying that necessarily but it's it's interesting to think about for sure um and the last note there is we got kind of a sense of at least one report of what what the catching what the trade market might be looking like right now through this where uh, we heard that the a's ask from the Cardinals for Murphy included Lars Newt Bard, Brendan Donovan, and Gordon Graceffo, which 
on our site by our model would have been a pretty substantial overpay. So yeah, we're into we're into the teams asking a ransom for their guy territory of the off season, and then they'll they'll come down and and make a more reasonable trade as the off season goes on. Yeah, and you know a lot of people are having fun with that, but I you know the reason why the Cardinals didn't take it because clearly it was a you know sky high ask. So, um, but in a weird way, I think it's validating because to your point, the you know the process typically i mean that's any any negotiation you're going to start high and you've you know and then you're going to come down and so that's that's all it is it's, it's a negotiating ploy the a's still have a lot of leverage they don't have to trade murphy he's still got three years of control they want to because it makes sense strategically but they don't have to and so they're playing hardball basically pardon the pun but you know and there's several teams that need a catcher so even though the cardinals just signed Contreras, there there's still plenty of others we talked about the red sox the guardians and there's a few others, the Rays, I would imagine. Um, so, you know, I think that even the Mets could get involved. We talked about him, them a little bit. So they're still, like, justified. The A's are still justified in asking for a high price for Murphy. And, you know, even if they're going to come down from that particular number, they're probably going to get pretty close. I feel confident they're going to get pretty close to what our estimate is. Yeah, I, I think I'd agree. There's plenty of market left for him, for sure. Um, so I'm going to... I think that's, unless you have any free agents that you really want to hit on, um, I think I will ask you next about the Rule 5 draft, if you have any thoughts yeah. there, and then we can kind of go into a, a couple quick predictions. I have a few questions for you there. So Rule 5, awesome. anything of note from there? No, I mean, I'm always a little bit surprised, you know, there's a lot of, you know, speculation when, when teams don't protect certain players before the Rule 5, it's like, oh no, we're going to lose them, and they don't usually lose them there's not that many actually get picked nobody was picked in the second round and only like half the teams picked somebody in the first round so he only got i don't know what the number is offhand maybe 15 guys were picked um and so you know um and they were generally guys i mean just for people that don't know when the rule when you pick a guy in the rule five draft you're required to keep him on your 26 man roster for the entire year so when the A's picked Ryan Noda from the Dodgers, who's a first baseman, has some pop, it's with the intent of playing him on the roster for the full year. And if they don't, they have to give him back to the team that came from, in that case, the Dodgers. So my point is the teams that do select a player are doing so, you know, they have to kind of roster him. So they have to be able to give him rep, rep, so, uh, reps. So it makes sense that the A's would take a chance on a guy. It makes sense that the Nationals would take a chance on a guy because they can give them the reps. But other teams who are squeezed for a roster spot, uh, maybe not so much. Those 26-man roster spots are really tightly controlled and pretty valuable. So to add a guy who's maybe a question mark is like, nah, we're good. And so that's why you don't see as many people taking them. Yeah, I think that's a good call. Um I am currently reading what was just tweeted out by Ken Rosenthal. He tweeted his what I'm hearing kind of notes column for the day. Uh, just breezing through here for any notes that are worth mentioning here. Uh, the D-backs are probably going to trade an outfielder. That makes sense. They're getting a lot of calls on them. They have Dalton Varsho, Alec Thomas, Jake McCarthy, all left-handed hitting. And, and that's in addition to Corbin Carroll, who likely won't be traded. But it seems like they'll probably move one of those guys. Uh, he says the Pirates are willing to entertain moving center fielder Brian Reynolds, if only because clubs are almost always li willing to listen on trade offers. A rival official says the Pirates want a Soto-type package for Reynolds. And then on Murphy, teams are making a renewed push in trade discussions for A's catcher Sean Murphy. 
Twins, Padres, Cubs, Astros, Rays, Guardians, etc. So just a few quick updates there. Nothing too surprising. Um, just going to ask you for a few quick predictions here. Okay. Does Brian Reynolds get traded? And if so, where? I say yes. Um, and here's why. Um, the Pirates are not going to be serious contenders until 2025 at the earliest. I mean, they might make a little bit of noise. They might be a little bit better in 2023, but they're not going to be a playoff team. Maybe they get the 500 in 2024, but there's a big maybe there. But they've got talent coming up that just need to kind of nurture that talent. And by 2025, they should be. Okay, that's the expectation. That's Reynolds' last year of control. We already know that he's turned down extension offers, so he's not going to. So there's an end point there. So his control is finite. So his only year where he's really adding value to the team would be 2025. So you're wasting his value in 23 and 24, which is where all the surplus is. So it would be foolish for them to look at that picture and say, okay, we should probably trade him for more talent. And keeping in mind, not all prospects make it. So the more you have, the more likely that you're going to get some that do make it. So you might as well trade him for what you can get. Um, the other reason is because he can play a passable center field, and there's still a lot of teams looking for a center field. That's really a shortage in the market right now. He's probably better in left, but you can play him at center. Um, so I think uh, they're justified in, in seeing what they can get. Now, obviously, they're saying, eh, we don't need to trade him because that's a leverage move. But I think I think he will get moved. Um, the question is to who off the top of my head, um, my first instinct is the Dodgers, because you got to look at teams that have the prospect capital to afford it without it being too painful. Um, and the Dodgers just lost their center fielder in Cody Bellinger and they've been pretty quiet, but they've got a lot of trade capital in that farm. So, um, but that would be my guess. Okay. Where's Murphy going? Um, my best guess is the Rays. I wouldn't count out the the Mets um, because I, I think they're in win-now mode and Alvarez is so young, I don't think they can count on him and I don't think they like it that they have Nito and, uh, and McCann is kind of, you know, meh. So, you know, uh, I can see them make it. So it, let's say they, they do sign Carlos Correa to play third. Now they've got Brett Beatty, who's got some serious prospect value as kind of the lead piece in a Murphy trade. And you can throw in two more pieces, and I think the A's might actually say, hmm, okay. Uh, so that would be my surprise sort of scenario there for Murphy. All right, I could I could see it. Uh, Red Sox and Giants, they've been just missing out on a lot of the top-tier guys. I, I know we said we'd try to get to the Red Sox, but they, they signed uh, – uh, is that Yoshida, his last name, the outfielder, yeah. um, as well as Kenley Jansen. And I'm pulling it up right now. Boston, uh, Yoeli Rodriguez and Chris Martin as well for their yeah, bullpen. So, so um, some relievers, yeah. Yeah, Which they so needed. absolutely. Uh, but Giants, Red Sox, do you think either of them end up making the splash that they've been hoping to make? So there's a larger point here of like, <clears throat> okay, when, when you've got a bunch of drunk people at a party and they're making all these crazy moves and you're the smart person who's not drunk, <laughs> you know, you're like, what well, just happened? It's kind of my analogy for what's going on with Farhan Zaidi in San Francisco and Hein Bloom in Boston and a couple others who are very disciplined and you can throw Friedman from the Dodgers in and they're like, what are these guys doing? Like these intelligent sort of spenders, the ones who are known for drawing hard lines and sticking to their models, haven't really been doing anything because you know the market's been a little out of whack so 
Um, so I think they're waiting for, they're doing their typical thing of sticking their models and waiting for the opportunities to come. They will come, but it's a curious sort of dilemma now because if they miss out on the top talent, then the only thing that's going to get to them is sort of the middle and bottom talent, which isn't maybe enough. And I know there's already pressure on Bloom to kind of Red Sox fans are not happy with, you know, what's going on there. They're not, they're not, they're confused about what the direction is. Um, and not a lot, there's not a lot of trade capital to work with, at least on the farm for either of those two teams either, unless in, you know, it's not in their DNA. Bloom's DNA in his his boss says build a sustainable model. So the way you build a model is you build a strong farm and you kind of tap into it as you go, like the Dodgers have. And that's what Zadie is doing in San Francisco as well. So he doesn't want to trade his top prospects. So he's basically locked out of, you know, the top talent and free agency because he's sticking to his model and he doesn't want to, he's hugging his prospects. He doesn't want to give them up for the future. So they're kind of stuck. Both of those teams are kind of stuck and confused of what to do. And you're starting to see it now in articles that are coming out like, Okay, <laughs> they're thinking, but they're not doing. So I think it's something to watch. I think they're going to try to you know, marginally increase here and there where they can, where their models sort of say they should. But I don't think it's going to be anything major from the looks of it. Yeah, I think I'd agree with my one wild card being that I could see the Giants getting a little silly and going for Correa. Uh, I, I think he could be a flashy type to, to lead their kind of next wave. They could see him as yeah, um, sure. along those lines. Last questions. Where are Correa Swanson and Rodon going? I don't know. Um, Correa doesn't, and the Dodgers don't want Correa because there's bad history between them and the Astros. So the giants, I could think I could see making the most sense, but I, I have no reason to discount these Mets rumors. So once again, because Cohen's paying everybody, so why not? It's between the Giants and the Mets. Um, the Twins, I don't think so. It's just a gut a hunch. Um, and the Yankees are still sitting there. I know they signed Judge, but they're they're also kind of disciplined and they're waiting for their moves. And who knows what they're going to do? They're going to do something. But I'm not convinced it's Correa. I think it's more likely to be Rodon for the Yankees. I think that's that's pretty clear. But the Yankees, now let me just talk about that for a second because. They signed Judge, right? Um, but they already had Judge last year. So they, they paid a whole bunch of money just to, to retain somebody they already had. And if you look at their roster construction, um, like he was carrying that team with an 11 war season. So if he comes back to like a normal six or seven war player, like we talked about, that's four wins less than what they had, and their budget is higher. Um, so, like, where are they going to make up just those four wins to get back to where they were and fill in these other holes? And you've got aging players like Hicks and Donaldson you've got sort of issues with. And, you know, rookies like Peraza, is he ready to take over short or not? You know, like there's a whole bunch of question marks with the Yankees, which is why I think we haven't seen the end of that story. All right. I think all good answers. Uh, do you have anything else you want to touch on? Um, just one other sort of nugget I just happened to spy in that Rosenthal article, which is that the Reds are looking to trade from their farm. Uh, because they have a surplus of shortstop prospects and they want outfielders. So we might see some moves there. Interesting. I'm not going to lie. I saw the first like sentence of that part and it said reds and prospects. And I just kind of <laughs> kept scrolling because eh, it's just a, it's just a prospect puff thing. And uh, maybe a team is interested in one of them, but they're not going to trade Ellie De La Cruz or something like that. No, uh, that, is, that is interesting. I always love me a good challenge trade. Yeah. I think we might be seeing something there from the looks of it. Well, cool. 
All right. I think that'll do it for this week. Uh, do you have any any other site updates or anything like that? You oh, hit um, real quick? yeah. One last thing. So I, I wrote this article last week about the most underwater contracts. So check that out. But it's already out of date because some of those numbers have changed based on the market inflation that we've seen. They're still underwater, um, you know, but they're not as bad. As, they don't look quite as bad as when I first wrote the article. So I just want to say that up front. Yep. And that article will be linked below. Uh, but otherwise, that'll do it for this week. Thank you all so much for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us an email at baseballtradevalues at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at baseballvalues. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. We'll be back at some point here. Uh, two weeks from today is Christmas, so I'm going to guess we're not recording that day, but we'll be back at some point, either uh, later on in December or in early January. So until then, stay safe, enjoy the off season as well as the holiday season. Thanks, John. Thanks, John.